The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Moyer's Environmental Dialogues, Ocean River Shields of Achilles, with your host, Dr. Rob Moyer. Find out what others are doing and what you can do to create a greener and blue planet Earth. Now, here's Dr. Rob Moyer. Welcome. Today we're talking stemming the tide of pollution that is killing our fisheries. And my guest with me is Perry Gibson, Senior Editor of Fly and Light Tank. Tackle Anglers. Hello, Terry. Hey, Rob. How you been? Very good. Now, one reason why I'm delighted you're taking this time to talk with me is that you write the Fly and Light Tackle Anglers Stewardship Column, and many episodes of Moyer's Environmental Dialogues are about how we can all be better stewards of the earth and the seas. And I want to say a little more about your accomplishments uh, Terry has served in a number of field and in-house editorial capacities for highly respected fishing publications that include Saltwater Fly Fishing, Shallow Water Angler, Florida Sportsman, and Outdoor Life. Terry has also contributed to leading fishing, hunting, surfing, and dive publications since the 1990s. Terry has fished abroad in 10 counties, 10 countries, plus the U.S. territory of Puerto Rico, and in more than 40 states. Terry is a multilingual journalist covering the issues, and as an advocate working them, Terry has engaged in conservation issues in more than 20 countries, including the front lines of water management, habitat and fisheries management issues in the U.S. Terry, I'm really impressed that you could find time with all your outdoors and sportsmanship to... Uh, sit back on by the telephone with us. Oh, well, thank you for having me. The most important thing to do right now is get the word out about how serious these issues have become. Yes. Well, that's another reason why I was looking for this program is because you and I have walked the hills of Washington to convince uh, legislators that it's so important to do the planning ahead of time uh, before, you know, we start taking too much from the resource. Sure. Yeah. yeah, I was thinking about our last trip, Rob, on Tuesday when I was fishing at Sebastian Inlet, Florida, with my old friend Glenn Austin, and um, we were actually sh- shooting a promotional um, video for, uh, I better not say for what, um, yeah. but about fishing in Florida. And, um, you know, the, over the last year and a half, the Indian River Lagoon Complex, which is probably the most biologically diverse um, uh, estuarine system in, in North America, I've heard that it is, some 800-odd fish species have been described there, you know, almost every single blade of seagrass has disappeared. And so we were forced to fish outside the inlet, which didn't turn into a bad thing because there were tarpon out there, and we got into the school of 
gigantic Jack Creval and they're throwing, uh, you know, flies at them, throwing big popping bugs and they were just bonking into each other, chasing it down. It made for, for great filming. And, you know, we saw some tarpon out there and, and, um, you know, and, and, and I, I, you know, I'm, I'm, I did my job and made it sound, made it look like I was having fun and feel really enthusiastic. But I was thinking to myself, you know, th- things are really not right here. And, and what made me think that was one of the young guys was doing the film and he was like, wow, look at the size of that school of tarpon. Well, I was thinking, you know, I'm not even 40, but I saw some good fishing in my day in this area, but this young guy, probably 22, 23, is like, look at that size of that huge school of tarpon. And I'm thinking, that's a tiny ball of fish for the April migration coming up wow. the East Coast. And so we've got this horrible, horrible, um, you know, perception problem thanks to what's called shifting baselines that we need, you know, we need to address. And um, that's one of the things that, one of the subjects of my upcoming stewardship column is what, what is a shifting baseline and why anglers should not be uh, satisfied with, um, you know, with uh, contemporary estimates of abundance, quote unquote abundance, but on historic, we should get back to historic levels of abundance. A couple of yeah. generations have been cheated because of overfishing and pollution. Right. Yes, and too often they blame overfishing when um, it's also, you know, the the quality of the habitat and, and not polluting is an important part of that. Right. Well, you know, my take on that, I hear that a lot. Sometimes it's thrown out as a red herring to justify more fishing when the resource can't can't take any more fishing. True. It's a lot less. But, you know, if a system can only generate 100 fish per year and you can only take 40 of those fish out of it and expect there to be 100 the following year or maybe even a few more, um, you know, you don't take 50 out because the water's dirty. You're still overfishing. You're still leading, leading us down that, that dangerous path down to, to the, to the zero sum at the end of that path. So, you know, unfortunately, you know, I mean, this is what I, why I exhort my fellow members of the recreational and commercial industries, fishing industries, you know, the better we take care of the nurseries, the higher quality of the habitat, the, the more, you know, fecund the systems are, the less the, the, the less nasty these fights over the fish pies are going to be. There's going to be, you know, there could be enough for everybody. Yes. Like the tarpon you saw, people aren't taking a lot of tarpon out of the ocean. So I would think that a decreasing, a smaller ball of fish that you said, you know, is, is like you said, it's a bad sign for bigger things like the environment, I'd say. Yeah, for sure. I mean, the tarpon's a really interesting animal. I mean, I... Uh, you know they're they're older than most of the fish we pursue. They were um, the spiny ray fishes, which descended from a you know a common ancestor of the striped bass. Um, but these guys, I think they've been around like a hundred million years, and they uh, they uh, actually are eels in their in their larval stages, the left is what it's called. And they they came into being in a time when the oceans were very acidic and warm and anoxic and. And, um, and so their best camouflage when they're early in their early life stages was being transparent. So there wasn't any seagrass or, or uh, seaweed to hide in. I'm sorry, not seagrass, but seaweed, you know, sargasm and things for them to hide in during their pelagic stages. And then storms will blow them ashore and they inshore and they settle out in these tiny shallow creeks with barely any oxygen in it. And, um, and that's why they roll. They can actually have capillaries in their swim bladders where they can actually breathe air. Um, you know, there's only a few other fishes that can do that. And so, but it allows them to settle out in places where they're not, they're a little less exposed to, to predators and there's a lot of little, you know, killifish and, and, and forage for them, covipods and things like that. 
Right, but great food. Those, Tell us more about the rolling of um, tarpon. I mean, it's a concept that we that just kind yeah, of they washes come, they over us, realizing sure, we're talking sure. about a kind of unusual behavior. Sure. Um, you know, tarpon will roll, especially when the water's calm or it's low in, in oxygen content. And they literally they'll do sort of a half moon arc across the top of the water. And they'll, they'll get air, and then when they go down, you'll see the bubbles come up. And they actually are, you know, have, have actually taken a breath. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, they can survive in really low level water, water in areas why they do fine in canals and ditches and things. They can, it's, and, 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 you know, if, if we protect enough of their juvenile habitat, they may, they may survive climate change and all the other woes that are coming their way. They've survived a lot. But they, um, the biggest threat to them, I think, in, in the United States at this point is that, you know, we're filling in all those little tiny ephemeral wetlands where they, you know, where they settle out and grow up or these small creeks, you know, and then we're doing mitigation somewhere else that doesn't do the tarpon a damn bit of good. No, it so, doesn't. And um, we had Lou Hastings on the program, uh, the last program, uh, from uh, Boca Grande, the Chamber of Commerce there, and he's very enthusiastic about here, about the tarpon. Well, that, the tarpon really made that, I mean, it, the development of Southwest Florida and Southwest Florida's tourism really came about because of an, an, a passion for tarpon fishing. Uh, I think the first one that was caught recreationally was caught right around there, I think around 1889 or somewhere thereabouts. Uh, yeah. Uh, there's, a, there's a great book out um, on it right now, and I'll remember the name here shortly. Randy Wayne White was one of the one of the authors and editors. Um, but, the, you know, they're incredibly valuable, and, you know, they... Nobody really targets them to kill them except occasionally as trophies anymore in the United States. Um, but, you know, and, and, and we don't know a lot about them because, you know, National Marine Fisheries Service doesn't manage them, and they typically put most of their research money towards things that have what I call dead on the dock value, where the value of tarpon is, is in the, you know, the pursuit. It's in, in the hunt for them. And, you know, and so, no, I don't think that the fishing – Fresh mortality in contemporary times is is really the the cause of their demise in the United States, but in a lot of other countries they are harvested. I was in Colombia, the Gulf and Caribbean Fisheries Institute conference last November, and um, we toured a, um, a fish market, and what I saw was pretty sad. I've been selling tiny little grunts and things, and baby, and there are lots of baby tarpon. And interestingly, the tarpon were the last things to go and the cheapest thing on the menu, so to speak. So they aren't. They're, they're fishing them because they, because they probably don't have anything else left. But you know, it would be my guess. But there's a lot right, of they're not good harm. eating, so that's probably why. Yeah, I mean, but they're not, I've eaten them before, and they're not you know horrible eating either. Just kind of bony, um, yeah. tough to clean. And, and there's places in Mexico where they harvest them for their roe, for their eggs. And so there are people, you know, there are people in, in other countries killing them. And you know, this animal, you know, we don't, we don't have the whole migration picture. Uh, figured out yet but you know the the fish that used to be off texas they came to florida and and um you know we've assumed that some of the fish they find in cuba and mexico and part south um you know migrate through into into u.s waters sometimes so it's a it's going to be a tough it's a tough species to get a handle on where it's going we're going to need some sort of international agreement on them and um that's that's being attempted right now i believe um there have been bills in congress before requiring Congress to set up those conversations with, with other countries. But, you know, historically, you know, actually there was a there was an IUCN report on tarpon release not, not long ago and showed about a 33% historic, historic decline. And wow, a lot 33% of that, 
decline. Yeah, like, yeah, down by a third. By a third. And uh, let me tell you something: as hard as those things are to catch, we need every last one of them we can in the ocean. Um, you know, they're so smart, so difficult to target. You don't get many shots; it makes it almost impossible. So, you know, in Texas, and I, I can't remember the decades proper, but um, they, you know, they they hung a lot of them up on the dock, and they, you know, they dragged them out of water and took pictures of them, and you know, they. We, you know, the sportsmen, we we didn't know what we were doing then. It wasn't, you know, right. willful and wanton waste, but at the time, people thought the oceans were, you know, extremely bountiful, if not infinite, in their bounty. And and uh, the, you know, my friend Brandon Schuler, um, you know, whose book you referenced earlier, he wrote the book about, you know, how those animals basically disappeared from the Texas coast. We're starting to see some again, but it's not where it should be. No, but that's interesting that the tarpon are are more like ocean wanderers, like the sturgeon, so they might return to, might discover places, unlike the salmon that are wedded to their rivers? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, we, they haven't really figured out the whole, um, you know, the whole uh, spawning um, locations, the spawning aggregation sites, if there are any, um, in, t- in their entirety. But it seems like there's some fish that are pretty loyal to, the area off of Tampa Bay, Florida, that they seem to be feeding inshore and then heading out to the edge of the continental shelf. Um, and off of where I live in Stewart, Florida, they seem to be doing the same. Um, so, you know, we, we think that they're loyal to certain areas and, and, you know, we should talk about the national ocean policy later, but, you know, part of the thing we need to recognize is that there's some, some very special places in the ocean that fish do show a lot of fidelity to, loyalty to, and, um, lots of them come back to, to these specific places to make more of themselves. And given that tarpon fishing is a billion interest in Florida, it might not be a good idea to say stick a to, to drill for oil right there or something like that. You know, right? That that is a, a good lead-in just to make the point of the value of uh, regional ocean partnerships and also the president's national ocean policy is that it, it gets people from different areas to talk to one another, and so they can compare notes on, like you just said, what you're seeing on the Atlantic coast of Florida with tarpon versus what they're seeing up in Tampa, I would think. Sure. You know, and, yeah, and, you know, we need clean, green energy and there's a lot of new players coming to the coastal and, and marine environments. And, um, but we just need to, to sit down together and say, and recognize that some of these areas are, are, are more than just ecosystems or ecos- important components of ecosystems. They're, they're economic generators. They make the fish. You know, and recreational fishing is the third largest industry in Florida alone. And, uh, you know, it's some like, these are like 2004 numbers is about $6 billion, way bigger than that now. Yeah. You know, so you, you just, if you're going to come in and put, you know, say a wind field in somewhere, you know, it would be nice to A, know exactly where those tarpon are spawning and B, you know, uh, make sure we don't do anything right, right there that, that, that interrupts our, you know, that, 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 uh, you know, that, that causes our, uh, our economic engine there to stall. Right. And with Florida being so low and flat, you almost can put the windmills on the land and leave the uh, economic drivers of the healthy sea population to keep going or something. Yeah, they're, they're putting some out in the Everglades agricultural area. Um, I'm not sure, quite sure where, where it is in the process. But, you know, the yeah. idea is to be accommodating and try to avoid user conflicts up front. But, you know, I mean... Gosh, Rob, I've been in litigation almost nonstop my entire career trying to protect places from, from that I grew up hunting and fishing and surfing and diving. And, you know, and, and these are all places that have value to communities as, as 
you know, public resources. They have economic, their economic drivers. And a lot, I would say probably in at least half the cases, just a conversation up front, you know, about recognizing the inherent value in these places and, 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 and you know, in a planning, um, planning process would have accommodated this new interest, whether it was developer or, or whatever, without destroying this place and certainly without, you know, spending years of and, and many, many dollars in court. So I think, you know, that one of the most important things that the, these regional planning bodies and the National Ocean Policy, I at least hope, will do is is savably a lot of time and money and, and heartache. You know, I mean, if anybody's ever been through litigation, it is not fun. No, it isn't, and so it really pays off to do the planning up front, get the different stakeholders to talk to one another before they're all dug in over, you know, spent stuff. Um, That's right. I'm talking with Terry Gib- uh, Gibson, and we're going to take a short break and be right back. Thanks, Terry. Streaming live. The leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Connecting local stewardship with global support, the Ocean River Institute is a nonprofit organization dedicated to helping people and groups make a difference where they live and work. We believe that many environmental issues can best be addressed by people taking action in their own communities and regions. It's not the large national entities, but the small, localized, or newly formed groups that often need help to achieve their goals. That's where the Ocean River Institute comes in. We maintain a network of eco-stewards and ORI partners, connecting them with resources and services to help them maximize their impact, expand their capacity, and weather unexpected setbacks. ORI actions and events offer opportunities to make a difference, to go the distance, and you can volunteer to be an ORI eco-steward. To discover more, visit us online at www.oceanriver.org. That's www.oceanriver.org. The Ocean River Institute is a 501c3 nonprofit organization dedicated to helping people and groups make a difference where they live and work through environmental stewardship and science. Talk, talk, talk. That's all we do is talk. If you'd like to talk, call us toll-free right now at 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. That's it. That's it. VoiceAmerica.com. You're listening to Moyer's Environmental Dialogues. To participate in today's discussion, you're welcome to call into the program at 1-888-346-9141. Again, that's 1-888-346-9141. You can also send an email to rob at oceanriver.org. Now, back to Dr. Rob Moyer. Hi, we're talking about stemming the tide of pollution that is killing our fisheries. And my guest is Terry Gibson, Senior Editor of Fly and Light Tackle Angulars. Uh, Terry, how can people uh, be in contact with you and uh, learn more about uh, FLTA? Okay. Yeah, uh, my partner, Mike Connor, and I founded Fly and Light Tackle Angler along with our longtime friend and colleague, Ron Romano. He spent about two years building Fly and Light Tackle Angler. 
which is an application-based magazine. It's completely interactive, and right now it's for the iPad, but we're in the process of, um, of designing, redesigning it for the other tablets as well. But um, you can you can download Flying Light Tackle Angler just from the news. Go to go to go to um, um, iTunes and go to the newsstand, and you'll find us pretty easily and download us. But um, and it's Flying Light Tackle Angler Magazine, or you can go to our website www.flyandlighttackleangler.com, and uh, um, there's plenty of places to contact us there. And um, you know we we'd welcome you as viewers. We've got a really, we've already built a pretty solid community together through the publication. And, and if you're an angler like like us, you know it's really concerned about what's going on in the in the in the, in the, in the environment for cross fresh and salt water. Um, you know we're 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 uh, we're ginning up a really powerful and melodious chorus. So come join us. Yeah, I'm not a, a big angler, but I love looking at fish. And you guys have the best graphics. You've got some fabulous imagery on your website. Thank you. Well, you know, you, you, I think I showed you the, the publication. You know, we've got you know high definition video, so, you know, still photo sequences from some of the best photographers in the world. We just don't think there's anything out there that's as visually impactful as what we're doing. And um, what we're really trying to do is show a proper reverence and celebration for you know the great gifts that the outdoors have given us like having fun on the water fishing with your friends it really comes through your respect for the fish is very evident i like fish rob a lot (laughs) (laughs) it shows and i sure like eating fish so thanks for catching us lots of fish Um, sure thing but oh so let's talk about um the Pollution problems that you're finding it close to home for starters. Yeah, I mean it's a chronic problem worldwide. But you know, again, I'm fortunate enough to live on the Indian River Lagoon, on the east central southeast part of Florida, and it's a beautiful place. The Gulf Stream comes very close to the to the shore. Um, you know, we've got the north end of the North America Coral Reef Tract there, and uh, we've got all these this lagoon that runs 130 some miles off the top of my head, and bunch of river systems that, that, that feed into it. And, you know, it's just, it's just this amazing area of productivity. In the last year and a half, it's pretty much died. I mean, it's, there's, we reached some sort of tipping point where we've have, we have what the scientists are calling a frame shift. And instead of seagrass, we have algae. It's so bad. We used to have like six different species of seagrass and they're all just getting choked up with algae and, uh, unable to get light and algal growths on their blades and what a mess! Yeah. Oh, it's crazy. And I mean, you know, we—I don't think we're seeing the, the the fisheries impacts just yet in terms of productivity, but we will in a couple of years when there's suddenly you know whole year classes missing from you know some of our most important commercial and recreationally pursued species, as well as a whole lot of the things that that play important roles in the ecosystems that just aren't nobody eats. Um, but, you know, and like I was talking about fishing with my friend Kevin Glenn on Tuesday, you know, right inside of Sebastian Inlet, I mean, there's some, some of the best flats in the world to catch tarpon and, and redfish. And, you know, the last year and a half, Glenn didn't fish them anymore. I mean, they're just gone. They're just sand. They're just barren. There's not even algae on them. And then you get to, away from the inlet where, you know, they get some flushing, and it's just, I mean, the, the river stinks. You know, it smells so like rotting mats of algae because that's what's going on. Yeah. And, the, you know, the fish have moved, you know, fish that wouldn't prefer to be in, in seagrass or hiding in the mangroves. And, you know, manatee, you've got a huge manatee die-off 
turtle, I'm sorry, not turtle, uh, um, uh, pelican die-offs. You know, yeah, I'm hearing great numbers of pelicans are dying off, and it's yeah. very sad. Uh, yeah, the I mean, Ocean I'm, River Institute is working hard to get people to uh, call for responsible stewardship uh, measures in the way that we take care of our lawns. It turns out that um, lawns are getting five times more fertilizer than they need, and if we could just refrain from fertilizing during the hot summer sunny days, uh, that would go a long ways. And then if we could also use slow-release nitrogen so it would uh, feed the lawn over time and start feeding the lawn before the hot summer blooming time. And also slow-release nitrogen reduces the release of nitrous oxide, which is a greenhouse gas, 300 times worse than uh, carbon dioxide. Mm-hmm. And finally, you know, we want people to fertilize away from the waterways. Um, these are small steps that are, people can easily make. And they, the opposition says, well, you know, nitrogen from the lawns is not the biggest problem in the lagoon. The biggest problem is nitrogen from uh, Lake Okeechobee, and that's true. But when you're 90% sick, you don't want to have the other 10% to push you over the tipping point. So sure. uh, I and think it's very important that – and we're finding that the decision makers will not pass responsible ordinances simply because there aren't enough of their constituents calling for it. So it's simply a numbers game of it's going to take it's taking us a while to have a broad enough, diverse enough coalition of stakeholders and citizens and constituents of the communities to uh, call for it, and then it will happen. Yeah. Well, I thought a, a couple of points on that. Go ahead. You know, when the, in the years when we get the agricultural runoff from Lake Okeechobee, they are it's definitely devastating to the estuaries. And, and a lot in the reefs too, off off the beach. Yeah, but, you know, but those are you know those only happen every seven or eight years, and so the rest of the pollution time, the local um, runoff is the biggest issue. And you know, we absolutely have to to get a start educating people about responsible use of fertilizer, or just you know, get rid of your grass. There's a lot of things that will save you a lot of time and money that that look better and don't require nearly as much maintenance. That's what I've done with my yard. Yeah, um, you know, so. Um, but, you know, the whole thing about, you know, who's, who's most at fault, you got to remember in Florida and in most, and a lot of other ecosystems around the country, these are naturally oligotrophic systems. They didn't ever have a lot of nutrients in them. They were very, you know, they, they, they recycled nutrients very efficient, efficiently. And when you add, you know, more to it, it lets the algae scout compete the grasses and things. So if you're putting nutrients at all in the system, you're doing the wrong thing, and you're part of the problem. So, you know, we need to fix the sewage ta- the septic tanks on the, in Vero Beach. We need to, to to get you know the proper lawn um, fertilizing ordinances in place, and we sure need to stop the discharges. But um, but it, it, but we, it, it's, it's it's useless to sit around and, and point fingers at each other, um, and not instead of just taking responsibility for our own, literally for our own backyards and and starting where where it's easiest to gain political traction on your own property, you know? Absolutely. And so, if you're spending big bucks to fix up a septic system or a sewage system, you know, it's kind of galling to see your neighbor unnecessarily spreading fertilizer between June 1st and September 30th on their lawns, knowing that it's not going to do the lawn any good and just go into the sea. So it's important that we, you know, participate together in, in taking steps. Sure, sure. Um, um, but, you know, this is a chronic problem all over the country. There was a report released recently, you know, that something like 40 or 50 percent 
of, um, of you know, the streams and rivers and um, there's an EPA report, you know, are, are too polluted to support, you know, healthy levels of life. Stop and think about that for a minute in, in this context of stewardship. Yeah. What are we as Americans doing to our country? If almost half the waters are too polluted to support anything resembling a healthy ecosystem, much less recreational fishing. And it's really it's, sad, and it gets back to your your benchmarks that the current generation doesn't know that the former generation misses the clear waters, and, and they just think that it's always been a green tennis court of duckweed and slime and stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, and that's what the polluting interest, and, you know, it's not, at least in my area, it's not that people don't care. As a matter of fact, I'll, I'll put it out there, right there, out there, playing on the table. Politicians that presently hold office in Florida think they're going to get reelected. Got news for them; they better fix this problem. Got really wealthy, angry sportsmen up and down the Indian River again that probably are going to vote you out of office if you don't make make this a priority election, you know, priority campaign issue, and follow through with it. Um, but uh, but you know, it's just it's. It, it's, a, it's also it's the most insidious of all access issues for, for fishermen and other outdoor lovers. You know, I mean, you know, you've heard the endless carryings on and belly aching about you know marine protected areas and no fishing zones and everything else, which you know it constitutes a tiny percentage of, of U.S. waters. And meanwhile, you can't, you might as well not even bother wet a line in almost half the Chesapeake Bay in the summer because there's no oxygen in it, so there's no fish in it. You know, yeah. so uh, you know that's. You know, the, really, the, the the issue that the, our industry, my industry, you know, needs to really galvanize around is that we've got to start stop polluting our waters, and we've got to to codify an understanding in the law, in the statute that that streams and rivers and lakes and estuaries and lagoons and reefs, you know, they're not just things for you know tree huggers to to whine about. They're core economic engines. They Drive America, and that has not we have not gotten sufficient traction yet. No, it's hard to get that traction because people away from the ocean, even near the ocean, they just look out and see ocean, mm-hmm. and it's hard to get them to understand the life in the ocean. Let alone when there's a dead zone or a hypoxia area. You know that's why I'm you know up here in Cambridge, Massachusetts, and the reason I come to Indian River Lagoon is because that's where the most dolphins are dying, and people care about. Dolphins, and you've got your charismatic megafauna there. That uh, so we were able, you know, because people when they saw the pictures of seabirds being strangled by beer six-pack holders, people understood that, and across the nation started cutting up their six-pack holders. Mm-hmm. And um, so we have found the Ocean River Institute by having a campaign to help the dolphins that 60,000 people signed on to letters telling Brevard County. Would you please clean up your, uh, you know, modify your practices for the good of the lessening of nitrogen pollution? And, yep. uh, you yep, know, I, and yeah. I'm hoping that people will all across the land, instead of trying to envision how big the dead zone is in the Gulf of Mexico, think that, well, maybe there's a dolphin that lives there or a manatee or a pelican that uh, would appreciate it if you didn't let that nitrogen get off your lawn. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Brevard County, Florida is a really interesting case in point, and an unfortunate one. You know, that's where the, the Space Coast is. You know, that's where NASA is. That's where, um, you know, there's a, you know, the tech industries have really driven the economy in that area. And they're pulling out. You know, there's a lot of, you know, pretty high levels of, un- of unemployment there. 
there's some prospects for some new industry to come in, but it's never going to be what it was in its heyday. And so on one level, um, you know, I, I, you see people beginning to realize just how important it is to treasure the Indian River Lagoon and the Banana River Lagoon and near shore reefs, you know, as, as, as economic engines, as job providers. You know, I mean, there's God, God knows how many fishing guides there are in that area, for example. And they put people in hotels and restaurants. And, you know, I have a charter boat service myself. And, you know, other people make a lot more money because of the business I bring in than I actually make just taking people fishing. So on one hand, you're seeing an awakening in that community. But on the other hand, just because of the general political poison in the atmosphere and all the polarization, they just are want to fight any kind of new regulation. And, and I'm sorry, you know, regulations are not inherently, it's, that's not inherently a bad word. You've got to have moderating feedback loops in any system, whether it's management or, eco, or eco, in, in ecosystems. Otherwise, you know, things get out of whack and they start cascading and intertwine ways negatively and, and you wind up right in the mess that we're in now without a single blade of seagrass, despite the fact that that, that stuff's worth about $10,000, $20,000 an acre off the top of my head, but there's plenty of reports out there on it. And it's responsible for most of our, our uh, you know, most of our marine production. Yeah, all those critters in the ocean, they depend, many of them spend nursery time in the estuary there and the grasses. Yeah, and, on the order of 80%, 70 to 80%. You know, and then, you know, most people who come as tourists, you know, or come because of the good weather, they want to go to the shore and they don't want to encounter slimy algae on the beach. No, no. And that's a whole nother, I mean, that's, the whole image of the tourist economy is clean beaches, and then a subset goes off fishing. But uh, it, it's the, it, with the withdrawal of these other industries, it's such a huge portion of the uh, economy, not to mention the quality of life of uh, the northern sections of Indian River Lagoon. And it's just remarkable that, you know, citizens and people testify for three hours to the commissioners saying, you know, please put this in. And they just felt that it was too much like totalitarianism to promote, you know, to regulate. And yet here was a regulation that everybody wanted imposed upon themselves where, mm-hmm. um, you know, they would actually, lawn owners are saving money uh, by not having fertilizer sprayed on their properties during the summer. And in Florida, unlike other parts of the country, you have so many housing, you know, grouped houses in various forms together and they they come to the group and houses and says, look, you've got to spray fertilizer on your property four times a year. And everyone, and all it takes a majority to say, well, my, that's my real estate value. I've got to do it. And the minority are overwhelmed by the majority just worried about their interests and not realizing that uh, the applicators don't even know what's in these trucks of, of water. They don't know if it's just plain water and it would look just the same in the summertime. Uh, or if it's beer waste or whatever, and it's just, it's too bad because people want to take care of their properties and be responsible, and yet they're misled by this. Mm-hmm. We've had we've had numerous battles with the fertilizer industry, and the truth is not in those people. It's just not. Um, you know, they they just they they pull out these what I call consultants or biostitutes, and they tell people what they want to hear, and and um, you know, they throw some confusing looking that chemical equations on the board and from county commissioners and and um you know meanwhile the independent scientists are you know they basically just try to marginalize them as quote unquote tree huggers and it's it's deeply unfortunate when you have to deal with with um, with black hats like that but uh 
But you do, and there's only one way to deal with them, and it's the same way you deal with any bully. You confront them. Yes. Yes, and it's just a numbers game. It's just a matter of time before enough people understand that it's in our all our interest to have cleaner waters and to reduce pollution coming off the land. Yeah, but, you know, again, Rob, I mean, I've fished all over the world and all over the, especially all over the country, and, you know, it just amazes me, you know, that the amount of areas just aren't worth fishing in anymore. The places that, you know, like there's, um, you know, parts of the lake that I fish regularly that in the warm months, you know, there's there's plenty of bass in it, but you just, every time you pull your lure out, it's coated in slime. You know, I mean, that's just because a bass is a pretty tough animal. So oh, yeah. survive in those conditions, but, you know, it's just annoying and messy to, to, to fish in. Nobody really wants to do it. And this could be, you know, a, a significant centerpiece of, for, um, you know, a, a tourism economy in this area. And, and you know, people either, you know, knowingly or sort of sense it's, it's, it's a place to avoid. And, then, and you can replicate that story. You can, you can find stories like that everywhere you go. It's, it's really alarming. It is very alarming. And... Um, you know, but I think the way we're doing it is by um, getting small areas like counties in Florida and municipalities in Florida. Uh, Tampa's a great example. Uh, Lee County with Boca Grande, another one, you know, where they are showing how it's a reasonable request to have these modifications in our land practices for the less pollution. And yep. I'm taking those lessons back to Massachusetts here. We don't have county government here like you do in Florida. So it either has to be town by town or um, the whole state. And so uh, Nantucket Sound is very much like uh, Indian River Lagoon. It's very shallow and sandy, and, um, and it gets very hot in the summertime. And sure enough, you know, five miles out, which is halfway between Cape Cod and Nantucket, my son and I were in a small sailboat, and the wind died, and I pulled the paddle out, and you couldn't put the, your arm in the water up to your fingers, or your fingers, when the water got up to your elbow, you couldn't see your fingers for the green-brown, you know, algal lumen in there. And so that, that's sort of a mission of mine, is to be able to see my fingertips in August once again in those waters. <laughs> and it's a different dynamic here because I sat down with the lawn guy. I mean, yes, 80% of the problem is sewage and septic and things like that. But on the other hand, it's hard to tell. Um, that just... And I'm interested in the low-hanging fruit, which is this uh, nitrogen on lawns, because people don't know better. And it turns out in uh, – so they're all asking me, well, show the evidence. You know, where do you see the water coming – the stormwater runoff that's polluting this stuff? And uh, it's all sandy soil here, so there's no runoff. They put this fertilizer on the lawn, and boom, it goes right through the grass into the sand below. Um, so it's very difficult to do it on a uh, – on a town level, uh, but Falmouth is chewing it on a town level somewhat, and so I'm hoping that we can take their example, because they have the most estuaries of any town in Massachusetts in them, and I'm hoping we can take their example and do an even tighter one across the whole state. But it, it always helps to have some small successes before you go for bigger ones. Well, you're welcome to fly some of your decision makers down to, 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 to my area, and I'll show them the consequences of inaction in an extremely grotesque fashion. Yes, and, and so the, the way that I'm solving it statewide in Massachusetts is that they see runoff as a problem on the north shore of Boston where the Gloucester fisheries are, 
And so let's position modifying our lawn care not for groundwater but for the sake of the fish. I think you'll get a lot more attention to that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, Terry, we're going to take a short break, and then we'll be right back with Terry Gibson. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. Connecting local stewardship with global support, the Ocean River Institute is a nonprofit organization dedicated to helping people and groups make a difference where they live and work. We believe that many environmental issues can best be addressed by people taking action in their own communities and regions. It's not the large national entities, but the small, localized, or newly formed groups that often need help to achieve their goals. That's where the Ocean River Institute comes in. We maintain a network of eco-stewards and ORI partners connecting them with resources and services to help them maximize their impact, expand their capacity, and weather unexpected setbacks. ORI actions and events offer opportunities to make a difference, to go the distance, and you can volunteer to be an ORI eco-steward. To discover more, visit us online at www.oceanriver.org. That's www.oceanriver.org. The Ocean River Institute is a 501c3 nonprofit organization dedicated to to helping people and groups make a difference where they live and work through environmental stewardship and science. Talk, talk, talk. That's all we do is talk. Yeah! If you'd like to talk, call us toll-free right now at 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. That's it. That's it. VoiceAmerica.com. You're listening to Moyer's Environmental Dialogues. To participate in today's discussion, you're welcome to call into the program at 1-888-346-9141. Again, that's 1-888-346-9141. You can also send an email to rob at oceanriver.org. Now, back to Dr. Rob Moyer. Hi, we're talking about stemming the tide of pollution that is killing our fisheries. And my guest is Terry Gibson, who is a recreational fisherman, a hunter, a surfer, a diver. But we're talking fish today. And, you know, Terry, in our line of work, we often come across, and it's easy to hear, lots of cynicism, you know, about the whole situation of uh, cleaning up the ocean. Um, How do you turn around such talk? I think I start by talking to myself. <laughs> but, you know, I mean, Rob, you're in this line of work, and, you know, of course, for both of us, it's much more than a line of work. It's, it's, you know, we also see the, the, the dire important, the, the, the imperatives of, of, of fixing these problems, I mean, for the sake of this country and the planet. But, you know what I do? I think about the times we won. Uh, and, I, and mostly I think about the times when it wasn't necessarily that we, that we vanquished an enemy. It was the, the community learned and grew and, and, and matured into an understanding about ways we can and, can and we should and should not behave if we expect to enjoy our quality of life and a healthy economy and everything. And the one that, that really comes to my mind um, is the, the story of the Atlantic sailfish, and at least in, in this part of the Atlantic. You know, in the, um, 
it was another fish that drove tourism. I mean, back during Henry Flagler's days, people were coming from all over the world to Palm Beach, Florida, to, to, to catch a sailfish. And starting in, I think it's the second oldest fishing club, the West Palm Beach Fishing Club, they started running the Silver Sailfish Derby Tournament in 1935, I think, 35 or 36. Wow, and long that, ago, yeah. Long ago. And that tournament has run every year, save two, during World War II when there were too many U-boats offshore to fish. Um, that term is run. I think it just it just finished its seventy sixth year, and the really one of the really remarkable things about that says speaks volumes about the club is they've kept perfect catch per unit of effort statistics from from across the seventy six years. And you know our boats are a little faster, our rods and reels are a little more sophisticated, but we're not doing fishing that much differently. You know we're fishing with light tackle, trolling or live bait um, in the same places. And so a, year, a couple of years ago, I, I, I went through all the, 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 the data, and, and I plotted it out, and I did a report, and um, you can find this on the Fly and Light Tackle Angler Magazine website. I did a report that, that showed catch per unit of, of history over 70, catch per unit of effort over 76 years of this tournament. And I noticed something. Every time there had been some improvement in, in, in the conservation practices, the, the, the CPUE, the, each boat, Caught more fish each day, and it started in the in the in the in the 50s as people realized well, we don't we're not eating you know five so we don't need to bring all these sailfish back to the dock dead we'll just keep we'll just we'll, we'll create a, a trophy status for it and we'll throw the rest back and so when the catch and release ethic came into into being the the fishery improved and in various stages we got rid of you know big purse seams we got rid of long lines we got rid of gill nets um, we switched to circle hooks as as recreational anglers. And, um, which all, you know, are, are, are a very important conservation tool because they, they typically don't, it will catch in the corner of the fish's mouth and not gut hook the fish. So I plotted this out over 75 years and, and sure enough, I mean, the CTUE went way, way up, something like from like two fish to like six fish per day per boat. Wow. So, An increase yeah, so, of fish. Yeah. And, and I'll tell you something, a funny fishing story. Two summers ago, my friend Reed and I, yeah, we killed one because it was it, it did swallow the hook, which was rare, and we spent two hours trying to revive it, and we just it was a no go. And I was like, you know, we can feed the sharks this, or we can put this fish on the smoker. You know, let's keep them. And I swear, I thought I was going to fight my way down that dock. Holy cow! Why'd you kill that fish? I can't believe you killed that fish. I mean, the people, were, the community was angry at me for killing a sailfish, and you know, later the story they backed down. But that's what's happened in the span of you know a little more than half of a century is. People realize that fish is way more valuable alive swimming in the ocean than it is dead on a dock as bragging rights or, you know, in, even in a smoker. So, uh, you know, I think about that story a lot, and I think about, you know, the people that I turn to whenever I am, whenever I, you know, need help on a conservation campaign, and they're very often avid sail fishermen, and they just, they, they educated themselves about the thing they love the most, and, they, and then they found that led to learning about other issues, and, and you just get it. So to answer your question of how to avoid cynicism, you know, towards human nature and everything else, I, I, I think about the success stories. You know, I could go on and on and on, um, you know, about those stories, all the places that we've saved or we've created access to or protected access to. And, and it was, you know, it was, a, it was an awakening, an internal awakening within the community. That's where we need to go with pollution. That's an excellent story because of, the outrage of the other fishermen over the death of a sailfish 
people don't understand what stewards fishermen really are, and that really says it, how that there's a deep concern for tending, caretaking the resource so that it will always be bountiful. Um, yeah. 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 And, and we're not... We're not a you know homogenous body. You know, there's no, no, of course not. But but uh, I got the same thing from Earth Day. You know, where all these different interest groups are allowed to all say, "Let's save the Earth." Whether you were upset about the pesticides with Silent Spring, or the sound from the SST supersonic transports, or nuclear waste, or killing of whales, they all got under one tent, and and any everyone was allowed to rally for saving the Earth. And mm-hmm. since then, you know, I. I am continually astounded how much wildlife there is around us today. Here I am in the in Harvard Square, and a pair of red-tailed hawks will winter on the Charles Hotel outside the window here. I can see them sitting out there, and you know, it it you know the cynicism be damned. You know, that we are making progress, and um, yes, we have a long ways to go, but there certainly is grounds for hope. And uh, I, I really appreciate your. Uh, story of hope of the sailfish. You know, it's a good one. It's uh, it's important that, that people you know believe that there. You have to have hope, or you can't get anything done. That's for sure. And you know, to your story about Earth Day, one of the things that I've seen, um, most of the great success stories that I've been a part of, or you know, read up on, involved you know alliances between uh, between sporting people like fishermen and hunters and. And, and people would just purely love wildlife, you know, in the environmental communities. And, you know, this, the last eight years or so, this, the, we've, we've seen a very a deeply unfortunate repolarization of those, those communities. And, and um, I spend a lot of time, and you know, I'd like to spend some of this time, just encouraging people, not, you know, not to, to, to look at stereotypes as environmentalists or, you know, rapacious fishermen or whatever. Just sit down and talk to each other and find some common ground, and you're going to find that ground really, really quickly. And you'll find that that you agree on, you know, if you're just two reasonable people sitting at the table, you agree on 90% or more. And at this juncture, as rapidly as things are, are um, you know, unraveling in ecosystems for across fresh and salt water, it's really important that we focus on what the easy things to agree on, like the value of clean water, instead of focusing on who gets to fish where and with what gear. Or, yeah, people you know, get hung up on dogma that they've developed about, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Philosophies yeah. of life or something. And, and it's like, but we share so many, we share common interests and the common good of natural resources. Sure. And that kind of brings us back to the, uh, regional ocean planning commissions that they're setting up or partnerships they're setting up across the land. And, um, which was started under George Bush before, um, Obama's call for national ocean policy. And we just had a meeting in Narragansett about the Northeast regional ocean planners, and my point to them was that this is a coming together of people from all across the region who normally are in separate silos and never communicate. And I'm sitting here in Harvard Square, and we've got the Charles River out there, and they're so full of how much they're cleaning up the river, they don't understand that the Mystic River on the other side of Somerville, which is next to, I live in Somerville and work in Cambridge. The mystic has got the alewives coming and going, and the black-crowned night herons come in and feed on the alewife and the herring runs and stuff. And the people in the Charles River don't understand that two dams and one fish ladder that restore salmon to Charles River. And so I was telling the Regional Ocean Planning Committee that your role is to connect these stories where 
the Penobscot River is a bigger river in Maine than the little Charles River here, and it's got a lot of issues, and they have managed to, you know, rejigger hydroelectric dams and stuff and restore salmon to that river. And they also restored salmon to the river in Anchorage, Alaska. And these regional planning groups need to tell those stories because the Charles River people aren't going to go to Penobscot or Alaska, Anchorage, and if they do, they're blind to what's happening. Um, so it's really important that these stories and, and these accounts of uh, proper stewardship get spread. Absolutely. I mean, I'm, I have a tremendous amount of hope for, for these regional planning bodies. You know, as you know, we, weigh, we I weighed in, you know, throughout the process over the, the entire Bush administration and, and in, 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 in the first, uh, first four years of the Obama administration. Yeah, it was a, a bipartisan group that put together those those policy recommendations. It's not, you know, any liberal conspiracy to take your fishing poles from your cold dead fingers, as some of my quote unquote colleagues in the outdoor writing world would would tell you. Um, it was a, a very thoughtful and deliberate process where we we strove to to uh, you know as a community to to come up with a policy that was inclusive, fair, but you know didn't necessarily waste tax dollars by having agencies work across purposes and conflicts of interest and not talk to each other, you know, and, and, and so I, I hate, I, I mean, I hate to sound like a Pollyanna, but I almost feel like this is the potential to be a, you know, to be a kind of a start over, a push button, start over button for, for coastal and, and ocean management. And I, you're, you're, you speak some wise words there, Rob, about the importance of sharing stories, of success stories, through these um, regional planning bodies, and I, I think that um, you know that a hundred years from now we'll, we'll look back and say, why did we take almost to the course of two administrations to get this done? <laughs> we should have done it quicker. Everything would have been so much easier and healthier and more lucrative. Well, it's hard because each silo of government, you know, you work for your boss, and he doesn't want you talking to some other agent because that means time away from your job or something. And mm -hmm. so they're always reinventing of wheels. And uh, it's so liberating when you have this opportunity to, you know, have people by law have to talk to one another. That's all that these laws, these acts do is um, call upon, um, you know, permission to speak with one another. And so it's not a big budget item. It's very little money to make it work. Right. Um, we've run right. out of time. And, Terry Gibson, I want to thank you for taking the time to tell us more about uh, what we can do to stem the tide of pollution that's killing our fisheries. Thank you, Rob. Thank you for having me, and I look forward to seeing you on the water soon. Oh, you bet. And be sure to, um, Terry, what's your website one more time? It's uh, www.flyandlighttackleangler.com. Thanks, Terry. That's it for this episode of Moyer's Environmental Dialogues, Ocean River Shields of Achilles. Thank you all for listening. Thanks again for joining us this week on Moyer's Environmental Dialogues. Please tune in for more with Dr. Rob Moyer next Thursday at 12 noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. We'll talk again then. Rock, rock.